Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Our Father, we desire to praise You, yet our words often seem so inadequate. We desire to give genuine worship to You, though our hearts are impure and our minds distracted. May Your Spirit search us, convict us, cleanse us, turn our thoughts from this world to focus on You alone. Lord, in this room there are innumerable needs and heartaches. How can we not be heartbroken? Sin has ensured that we swim in an ocean of brokenness. But Your mercy, Your grace brings glorious healing. You cleanse and bind our wounds. For those who are struggling with doubts and fears... For those who succumb to temptation continually. For those who are grieving. For those who are in pain and feeling lonely. For those who may be facing persecution. For those who need to restore and reconcile relationships. Lord, show them that you are the only healer. Lord, show them that You are faithful to renew. Father, bring glory to Your name as You make them whole. Father, comfort and relieve the despair. May You touch our hearts and make our souls glad. No matter the circumstances, help us to know how good it is to sing praises to our God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In Psalm 147, these final five psalms are, have a common theme. They begin, each one begins and ends with a command to praise, an imperative that we should praise. Praise the Lord. Praise Yahweh. You know, many of the psalms, some that we've looked at, talk about complaints or address complaints, concerns, cries for help, that these five psalms are an exclamation point upon this hymn book that focuses upon God, His faithful provision. Praise is a common word in our vocabularies. I've been thinking a great deal about it. How would you describe, how would you define praise to someone that was not familiar with our language? Someone who didn't understand, had no experience here. You were asked to describe it, to define it, make them understand. We praise you, Lord. We talk about singing praise songs. What does that mean exactly? We may speak about praising a speech or an article or some feat that someone has performed. Often we're encouraged that if you have to have a corrective conversation, that you should begin with commendation or praise, thus softening the blow. 
Sometimes we praise someone for character, for personal qualities. Some think that these, this series of psalms, these last five psalms, were written at the time of the return from exile in Babylon. It would make sense. They may have been written specifically for the celebration following Nehemiah's rebuilding of the walls and reestablishing Jerusalem as God's city. In fact, the second verse and the 13th verse in this chapter allude to this, allude to some sort of physical restoration or rebuilding up of Jerusalem. Now, it's important, I think, if this is true, that we remind ourselves that even though this is a fairly brief psalm, that the events that it's alluding to didn't take place quickly. Now, we think in terms of hurry, rapid, needs to happen now, according to my schedule, right? That's not the way God works. Restoring the Jews to the land of of God's promise actually began in 538 B.C. Opposition prevented the rebuilding, the reestablishment of the temple until 516 B.C. Twenty-two years passed from the time that the return began until the temple was put back in order. It wasn't until 458 B.C. that Ezra led a second wave of migrants back to their homeland. Nehemiah followed 13 years later in 445 B.C. Restoration to the land, completion of the walls and gates, took 90 years from the time that the exile ended and they began moving back to the land. Almost a century. Almost a century. It's not easy to wait on God, is it? We want to go ahead and do things according to our timelines. You can read this psalm in just under a minute. About 45 seconds, I think, is what it took me to read it. But the events that are packed in this psalm took a century, basically. Now, this psalm has three stanzas in it. Each one begins with a call to worship. Each one cycles through reasons why worship is important, why we should engage in praise and worship. We find God's goodness undeniable through these verses. His provision is amazing and sufficient in all creation. He takes pleasure in those who delight in Him. Each stanza ends with a clear contrast. There are those who are afflicted and supported by the Lord versus those whom are wicked and that God brings judgment. In order to understand and apply the psalm, there are basically two major points that we want to talk about this morning. One is our mandate to praise. The second is examining the reasons that he gives for the praise. What are the motivations for praise? Why are we compelled to praise? Where do we find this? Is it simply just because we've been instructed and that's the end? No, He gives us motivation. He alludes to motivation. 
as to why we should praise the Lord. So let's begin with the first point. We have a clear mandate to praise the Lord. Now all of us would nod our heads. We concur. We should praise the Lord. We're gathered here today because we believe this, because we know this. It guides us in some fashion or form. We know instinctively this is a duty that we have. It's familiar language to us. But what does it actually mean? What is praise? One writer that I read described it this way. He said, Being sincerely and deeply thankful for and are satisfied in commending, affirming, acknowledging a superior quality or act. The most common use of this word is directed toward God, praising God. Most of the usages are imperatives. They're commands. Another author said this. He said, The themes surrounding and included in the verbal expression of praise, as indicated in the Psalms, show that it is imperative that God and His deity be recognized and that the fullness thereof be affirmed and stated. This is to be offered in an attitude of delight and rejoicing. We praise lots of things, don't we? We praise performances. We praise giftings or talents that people may have. We praise good deeds, acts of kindness or benevolence. We praise athletes and their exploits. We praise art, creativity. Lots of things we praise. We may praise someone's character. But we certainly focus on behavior and communication primarily. Praise Yahweh, the psalmist writes, because, he says, it is good to sing praises to our God. It is a good thing to offer praises to God. It is agreeable. It is agreeable to praise God, to honor Him, to exalt Him, to acknowledge His greatness. He says it is pleasant, it's delightful to do this. It has reciprocal value. That as we praise God, God doesn't just absorb all those praises, but that He reflects upon us His glory and honor and blesses us in the process. It is delightful. It's fitting, He says. In other words, it's comely. It's a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing to praise and honor the Lord. Now, after hearing that, after hearing that, how did your worship this morning stack up? I mean, just be honest with yourself, right? How do you think your worship stacked up to what he's saying here? It is good. To sing praises to our God. It is pleasant. It's delightful. And a song of praise is fitting. It's a beautiful thing. You think our worship, our praise this morning was beautiful? Was it delightful for you? Did we find it or did we exhibit that it was agreeable? Do you think it's okay to smile when you worship? Are you one of those that worships like this? 
are like this. How often we come to God's house together with His people and we maybe just don't even think about it, right? We don't think about how we're approaching God. Is it okay to enjoy it? We often focus on getting the melody and the words right, but should we get our faces and our body language right? More importantly, the attitudes of our hearts should be right. Now, I'm not talking about something that's superficial. I'm, not, I'm talking about preparing to truly praise Almighty God. If you're having difficulty reflecting His praise appropriately, then we should seek His help in preparing to worship Him appropriately. We are to bring gladness, joy, gratitude to the equation. Just singing the words without any other connection is kind of empty and useless. When God's people were taken captive in Babylon, or to Babylon, they could still worship. They could still gather and worship even apart from the temple. In fact, Psalm 137 verses 1 through 4 describes some of their worship there. Can I read those verses for us this morning? Listen carefully. By the waters of Babylon, writes the psalmist, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, on the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs. And our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? What a sad picture. Coerced worship. Habitual worship. But no heart. There was no delight. There's no joy. There's no gladness. Sometimes I wonder if God thinks we worship more like captives than rescued people. Praise the Lord, He says. It is good. It is pleasant. It is fitting. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Take the lyres down. He's referring to Psalm 137. Take the lyres down that you've hung up because you're too sad to engage God in praise with them. Take them down and again make melody to our great God. It is our responsibility. It is our mandate. William Ains says there's nothing better, nothing more pleasant or more becoming than to praise God. We have a clear mandate to praise the Lord. We also have a powerful reason, reasons to praise the Lord. We have powerful reasons to praise the Lord. He gives us three of them. Now this psalm does not exhaust these reasons, but he gives us three broad brush reasons, each stanza representing one of those reasons. First of all, he says, we praise the Lord because He redeems Verses 1 through 6. It's good to sing praises to our God. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. 
He determines the number of the stars, gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. The understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble and He casts the wicked to the ground. Israel had an incredible history of redemption with the Lord. Severe famine sent the family into Egypt in order for Joseph to provide salvation for them. Then they ended up 400 years in bondage there. And through ten plagues, God again liberated them from bondage. Out in the wilderness, moving through the wilderness toward the promised land. One episode after another, God had innumerable opportunities to save His people, to redeem His people, to remind them that He's a God of redemption. They entered the promised land, faced Jericho, numerous enemies, giants in the land, and God was faithfully providing redemption over and over and over again. And then their rebellion and disobedience, and God raised up Assyria and Babylon to bring about discipline upon His people. But with a promise, with a caveat, even though you're going to be disciplined for this, I will redeem again. Now they've been brought back out of that bondage. And once again, God has miraculously delivered His people. He builds, He rebuilds Jerusalem, the holy city. He gathers outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. He dresses the wounds. This text remembers Isaiah's words written before the exile. Hold your finger there and turn to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61, beginning with verse 1, the prophet Isaiah says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor or the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Wow, this sounds familiar. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To grant those who mourn in Zion. To, get, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that He may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you will boast. Instead of your shame, there, will, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be, show, shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. 
He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what it is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all nations. This is God's theme running throughout His Word. He's pointing even more so to a coming, greater, more important deliverance. Luke 4, 18 and 19 says, The Spirit, this is Jesus talking to His home folks in Nazareth. He's preaching to them. He refers back to this and He points to Himself. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor or the afflicted. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor sin has taken us all hostage we are all exiled from God and we are powerless to do anything about it sin came into the world Paul wrote to the Romans through one man and death through sin and so death spread to all because all sinned every single human being born in bondage to sin Every single human being owes a debt to God they cannot pay. The wage of sin is death. Physical death portrays spiritual death. Physical death preaches to us about spiritual death and condemnation and judgment. Spiritual death is separation. It's exile from God. Spiritual death is ultimate death and exile in a foreign land. Spiritual death banishes us to an eternity in hell. But Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to heal the brokenhearted. He came to bind up our wounds caused by sin and devastation and to make us whole again. He is the fulfillment of God's plan. You're destined to reap God's eternal judgment unless you repent of sin and put your hope and trust in Christ alone. Some of us here today may be delivered but still living like captives. Is that you? You can point back to a time when you say, I surrendered my heart and my life to Christ. But if we were to watch carefully, daily, As you live your lives, you live more like captives than like liberated saints. The praise of God is far from our lips, and it certainly is not warming our hearts as it should. You allow sin to torment and traumatize you daily. Christ will empower you to walk in light and liberty and love. Trust Him. Trust Him to do exactly that in your life. Put away those things that hamper, that that distract. Ask Him to strengthen you to walk in joy and gladness and gratitude. We praise the Lord because He's a God of redemption, but we praise the Lord also because He cares. Verses 7 through 11 
Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. He covers the heavens with clouds, prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives food to the beasts and to the young ravens that cry. He's not phased by the strength of the horse. He's not impressed with the strength of a man. It is He who is the maker and sustainer of all. No creature has anything that hasn't been given Him by God. And that includes us. He faithfully gives and provides as a loving God. He's not aloof and distant from His creation, but active. He didn't make everything and then set it in motion and leave it, as some would claim. He authors a special grace, a saving grace for the elect, and He authors a common grace for all creation, even those who continue to rebel against Him. His provision is incredible, worthy of our praise. All good gifts come from above. He takes pleasure in those who fear Him, in those who hope in His steadfast love. When He miraculously arranged and ordered Israel's return, it was a glorious and joyous thing to behold. They had no weapons. They had no strength, no ability to free themselves. They were in bondage. God did it all for them. It was His power, His goodness. It was evidence that He had not forgotten them. It was evidence that He had not abandoned them any more than He has abandoned you. Even though the circumstances were hard, His love endured. The same is true in your life and mine. Your days may be difficult, they may be disappointing, they may be devastating. This is never meant to make us feel abandoned, to figure it out all alone. This is never true for God's people. You hope in His steadfast love. You're anchored to His steadfast love and His gracious provision. He never fails. He never disappoints. He is always faithful and good and generous and gracious. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving, He says. Express the gratitude. We'll be thinking about Thanksgiving in a few more weeks. And we'll all be especially thankful at that time, won't we? Thankful for turkey and dressing and all the trimmings that go with it. And family and gatherings and traditions that we've all come to love and appreciate. But as we often remind ourselves on that particular holiday is that we're to be grateful and thankful at all times. Every breath we draw is a gift from God. Examine what He is doing in your life, even right now. Hearing this message of His steadfast love is His grace in your life. We praise Him because He's a redemptive God. We praise Him because He's a caring God. We praise Him because He's a God who speaks. Some five or six times He makes reference here in these final verses to His Word. 
This third stanza is focused on His Word. The reason Israel was free to return was God's Word. Listen, I'll share it with you. 2 Chronicles 36, verses 22 and 23. It's repeated at the beginning of Ezra's book. Listen. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The word of God as prophesied through Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. Cyrus was not a follower of God. He's not named among God's people. And yet he recognizes a pagan king with other allegiances, with other gods. He was moved and stirred up by the Spirit of God that God might fulfill his word prophesied through Jeremiah decades before this ever came about. Cyrus must have thought he was crazy. Why would he willingly let these assets go? Because Yahweh made it clear that he better let them go. And he did. Notice what he says in these verses. He sends out the command to the earth. He, his word runs swiftly. He hurt, hunts down the crystals. He hurls down, sorry. He hurls down the crystals of ice like crumbs. He sends out his word and melts them. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. Hebrews 4.12 says that God's Word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's not just a book. It is the very Word of God, breathed out, active, living, dynamic. His Word gives life and it sustains life. I love that he says his word runs swiftly. Hmm. I like that. His word runs swiftly. Wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, whatever I may be encountering, his word is swift and rapid. Isaiah 55 says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return, but water the earth, making it pour forth, Bring forth and sprout life, giving seed to the sower, bread to the eater. What a wonderful picture. Comparing God's Word. He says, my Word will not go forth void. When it goes forth, it will not simply echo back and return to God. It stays and it brings about life and sustaining power in life and transformation. It runs swiftly, carries out the bidding of our God. Rain and snow fall from the heavens. They do not return, but they do work here on the earth. They make life spring forth from seeds that leads to harvest of grain that becomes food. And so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return empty, but accomplish what I purpose. It shall succeed for the thing which I sent it. 
We can and should praise God because He speaks. He's not some dumb idol. He's not some inanimate object. He's a living, caring, redeeming, speaking God. His Word is powerful. It always brings about everything God desires. Praise the Lord! Hallelujah! Hallel! Praise you, Yah. Yah is the condensed, shortened version of Yahweh. Hallelujah. Begins and ends with this command, with this imperative. So what should we take away from this message? Have you got it yet? Praise the Lord. Is it... Is it doing its work in us? Let me give you a couple of questions to try to drive it deeper. Can we do that this morning? First question. Is your daily life, in your daily life, do you intentionally and consistently praise the Lord? In your daily life. When you get up in the morning, when you get up tomorrow morning, Monday, Monday, Blue Monday, back to work Monday, Back to school Monday, whatever it is, however you have described it in your life. When you open your eyes in the morning, what's the first thought that's going to enter your mind? Some of you are going to go, Ugh, I can't believe it's Monday. Maybe, just maybe, a better reaction to waking up in the morning would be to say, Hallelujah. Praise Yahweh. Praise God for a night's rest. Praise God for a new day filled with countless opportunities and blessings. Praise God even for the challenging and difficult things that will come my way today because they will provide opportunities for God to manifest His greatness and show me His glory in countless ways and how He faithfully provides well, even when I think He can't. How He will take something that I think is so bitter and unfruitful in my life and produce joy and growth, conformity to Christ. If your answer is yes, I intentionally, consistently praise the Lord, then I commend you and I encourage you to evaluate how you can improve upon it even yet, how you can excel still more. Maybe you should expand the time you set aside to praise the Lord. Maybe you should focus on recognizing the glory all around you. Maybe you should strengthen and deepen the quality of your praise. Make it more meaningful. Seek out and utilize richer resources to assist you in praising God. If your answer is no, then I lovingly exhort you to begin. It should be a vibrant part of your prayer life. Maybe you just need to begin by reading these final five psalms in this hymn book and meditating upon them for a few days, a few weeks. Take time to meditate. Take a hymn book. Take a hymn book and find some songs in there and sing them to the Lord. Do this in private. The Lord already knows how you sing, so you don't have to apologize to Him for it. 
He's not interested in the quality of tone. He's interested in the quality of your heart. Write a poem or a prayer expressing your praise to God. The second question is this. When you gather with us to worship, what motivates and compels you to worship? When you gather, like you did today, what motivates and compels you to worship? Now this can be a double-edged question. If you're one of those that's thinking, I never really think about it, then therein is a huge problem, right? It's a huge problem. What else do you do in your life that you don't think about before you go do it? If you have a, an assignment, you're going to meet with a client, you have to think about what you're going to say, what that conversation is going to be like. What, what does my client want from me in those moments? If you're teaching a class, you have to think about what I'm going to communicate to those students. If I'm going to be on the phone talking to people that my company serves, I'm going to have to think about, prepare for those things. Why would we come into this audience before the Holy God without preparing our minds and hearts for this encounter? Why would we come with other sanctified believers bought and purchased by the precious blood of Christ without contemplating why we come together? Is it just to say hi and catch up on the games yesterday? God, heaven forbid that it be that shallow. When we gather, what motivates and compels you to worship? For some people, it's an obligation or a duty. We gather out of habit. It's coerced, so to speak. It could be out of habit at best or out of guilt at worst. It's a matter of convenience for some. A matter of convenience. Well, if I got nothing else better going on or, you know, I can fit it into my schedule, I'll be there. If not, I'll catch you next time. For some of us, it's just primarily about us. What can I get out of it? The gathering is nothing more than a pep rally. Pump me up. Get me ready for this hard week. <laughs> Listen. Nothing could be further away from the description of true worship. It's not a pep rally. It's an expression of glory and gratitude and love for the one who has done everything for you and given you everything. You still need to be pepped up and pumped up after that. There's something wrong with your pepper. Something dreadfully wrong with your relationship with God. For some, it's a superstition. If I don't show up, God may punish me. He'll give me a bad week. Things won't go my way. So if I show up, I get God to smile upon me this week. For some, it's an intellectual scavenger hunt. Just gain more knowledge, more experience. For some, it's entertainment. What does the Lord think? The Lord says it's an opportunity and a privilege for us to gather to praise Him, to honor Him. 
The only reason we can is because He paid this supreme price by condescending to take on human flesh and shedding His blood and dying to make it possible for us to come together in an effective way to glorify Him. If He hadn't done that, this is nothing more than the Elks meeting together. Nothing more than a homeowners association meeting together. No more than people who have a common community that we come together and and gather and have fun together. You see, it loses its eternal focus when we're not coming together through the blood of Christ. For some, it's an acknowledgement. Or the Lord says it's an acknowledgement of His glorious redemption. And rescue. It's a celebration of His infinite provision and care. It's relational. We are nurturing. We're nurturing and admiring Him as our loving and holy parent who has done everything for us and draws us into Himself. It's loving, proclaiming joy, gratitude, honor for Him who is supreme. What compels your worship? What compels your praise of God? Is it just in your mind, in your heart of hearts, is it just as flippant as singing some praise songs? Singing my favorite praise songs that I heard on the radio this week and they make me feel so good. How insulting and demeaning to God. Sing the gospel back to our Heavenly Father. Let us lift our voices as inadequate as they may be with words that are far short of what they should be and lift our voices and praise Him with all seriousness and honor that is due Him. And Lord, we thank You and bless You and praise You. What a holy, magnificent God You are. Lord, We do struggle with our inadequacies, with knowing that, Lord, we simply repeat words that often fail to drive deep into the souls, fail to do a good job of expressing what's in the soul. We pray for your help. We ask for your help that we, Lord, might praise you and honor you as you deserve to be praised and honored. Indeed, Lord, may we praise Yahweh with joy and gladness and gratitude and sincerity for you and you alone are worthy of our praise. We ask in Jesus' name.